The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, Making Peace with the Past. It is uh, really a blessing to be here, and I have to say that Jim Neuheiser has been a, a treasured friend for, for many years. He, I met Jim about 97, 98, right in there when I was doing a D-Min at Westminster, and and um, he has been such an encouragement to me over the years. And, and we do thank you very much for Jason, but we especially thank you for Naomi. All right. And um, also Craig. Uh, Craig is, I, I will say that since Craig has been involved in IBCD, there have been so many wonderful improvements and um, not, to, not to say anything about how it was before Jason or uh, Craig, but you know, you've done a great job, but that's what you get when you put a, a harsh taskmaster like Craig in charge. And um, he told me that I would have the afternoon session. And I have, uh, if I'd have known that, I would have picked a different subject because everybody knows that the afternoon session is the most difficult because we just ate we just ate sausage and potatoes <laughs> next door and um, now Craig kept telling me it's an honor really and um, I, I don't really know if I believe you but um, <laughs> I, I've made peace with it alright so I'm going to ask if you'd take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I will not be reading from the elect standard version. I'll be reading from the new American standard version. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Familiar words, at least the first part. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker for that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not 
find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take away from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That which is has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. Let's pray once again and ask the Lord for help. Father, we come to You once again. We thank You for the privilege of being able to come to the throne of grace at any time to receive from You mercy and grace to help in time of need. And Father, we pray for Your help right now. We pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in His power, His presence. And we ask now for His help in the proclamation of Your Word. Father, we realize that this is Your Word. It's God-breathed. And we pray that You would give us open minds, open hearts. Father, we pray that You would help us to be alert and to receive what you have for us this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. We are, in fact, uh, incurably curious creatures. In fact, either we or the people that we're counseling can often become obsessed with asking this simple question. Why? This incurable curiosity starts when we're incredibly young. If you have children, you know one of the most common questions they ask is why. Not once, not twice, but sometimes 30 times in a row. You answer the question and then it's why. You answer that question, then it's why. And we, in a sense, never, never outgrow it. The thing is, is though, as we go through life, those why questions become more serious to us. Why did my spouse die? Why would God take my child? Why did my spouse commit adultery? Why did I lose this job? Why didn't I get that job? Why is my marriage so difficult? Why did my child rebel? I thought we did everything right. Why was I abused? Why can't we have children? The questions go on and on and on, and it is part of our nature to want to know why. Well, the desire to know why is actually then compounded when we say something like this. I know things happen for a reason. So when you take an incurably curious creature who's always asking why, and then you put into their life a fundamental assumption that everything happens for a reason, and then of course if you're a Christian, you embrace Romans 8.28, which says we know that God causes all things to work together for good, and so we want to know why. What's interesting to me is that even unbelievers will say things like this, right? I know that things happen for 
a reason. Which, by the way, I believe ends up being a reflection of them being made in the image of God and refusing to capitulate, as it were, to some kind of random universe that has no meaning. There is this innate sense that they know things happen for a reason. And so as we think about our past, as we think about why things happen, as we, as we are grounded in this idea that God causes all things to work together for good, there must be a reason for these things, then we wrestle with this question about why things have happened to us or why things have occurred in our lives, in our past. Over the years, I have probably spent more time in the book of Ecclesiastes than, than any other book. I don't mean preaching. I just mean in terms of personal study, research. I've wrestled with it, studied it, taught it, wrote a little bit about it. But I've used this passage, among others in Ecclesiastes, in counseling. And I suggest that the passage 3, 1 to 15, actually addresses at some level this fundamental question that we have of why. And so I think that this passage ends up being an incredibly important passage when we're dealing with, when we're helping people deal with their past. Now, I have to give you a very, very brief orientation to my understanding of Ecclesiastes because I don't take the traditional um, view that Ecclesiastes is some kind of evangelistic tract that teaches, one, all of life is either vanity or meaningless, as the NIV puts it, and that, two, life under the sun indicates life without God. I actually deny both of those premises when it comes to the book of Ecclesiastes. I think that the book is about something that's very, very different. I wish I had time to develop this. I don't, so you're just going to have to Take what I have to say, think about it some more, read about it, and then weigh it later like a good Berean. First of all, one of the key words in the book of Ecclesiastes is the Hebrew word chavel, which it literally just means breath or, or vapor or, or even mist. Our Bible translations typically take chavel to mean vanity or meaninglessness. And I would suggest that we should retain the idea that Havel is temporary, transient, mist, vapor. And what that means then is in a life that is uh, brief and vaporous, there are going to be many things that we don't understand. So one of, the, one of the clear implications of a life that is vapor is that there is mystery and enigma. Because on the one hand, we understand that God has put us here for a purpose. And yet on the other hand, we look at life and it goes by so quickly. It's so vaporous. It's so mysterious. It, is, it has Havel, in a sense, written all over it, and we wrestle with trying to make sense of life that is short and fleeting. Now tell me that you haven't wrestled with that before. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, I, I just, in, in December, on December 24th, I became a grandfather. 
And I was talking to, to George at the break, and he said, if I'd have known having grandkids was so fun, I'd have had them first. <laughs> and, but, you know, in one sense, I am so delighted, so elated with this, this little guy. I told the group last night, you know you raise your kids right when your daughter and son-in-law name their firstborn Calvin Owen. That's awesome. I've already bought him the Institutes and 16 volumes of John Owen. He's got little, you know, anyway, different story. But, but here's one of the things. It's, it's great being this grandparent. I love seeing this little boy. You know, I just smother him with kisses. And, but then I think to myself, where did the time go that my daughter has had a baby? Because it seems just like yesterday, I was taking her to ballet recitals. And it seems like just yesterday, she was this little girl. And time goes by so quickly, and it has the capacity to drive you crazy. Right? It really does. And so Solomon is wrestling with this idea that life is a vapor, it's a mist, it goes by so quickly, and yet you inherently know there's a purpose in it. Now the remedy, I think, in Ecclesiastes, is not to try to clear up the mist or the fog of Havel, or even necessarily to make sense of it, but rather to realize that Havel is a part of this sin-cursed life, and in order to get through this life honoring God and, in a sense, getting through this life sanely, what you have to do is you have to embrace each chapter as a gift from God that's not to be analyzed and clung to, but rather to be enjoyed as long as God gives it. And then when you move on to the next chapter, you embrace that one as well, in spite of the fact that it is mist or a vapor. It's a series of vapors. And if you try to hang on to a vapor, it's like chasing the wind. You can't do it. And so you just enjoy that vapor as God gives it. I say that to you as parents of young children. I say that to you as grandparents. I say that to you as newlyweds. I say that to you as students. These chapters of your life are going to go by so fast and you're going to wonder, you will go crazy if you sit there and bemoan the fact that your children are no longer little. And so Solomon says, in a sense, in fact, since you're in chapter 3, just look back up to chapter 2. I think this is the, the key text in the first two chapters that sets the tone for the book. Verse 24, Solomon says, There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Now this is not hedonism. Notice, this also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? And so what Solomon is saying is, listen, God has given you this life as a gift. He's also given you by His grace the ability and the capacity to enjoy that gift. Don't waste the gift. As one commentator puts it, it's as, it's as if Solomon has said, um, God has given you a can of peaches. 
and he's given some a can opener. Okay. Thanks be to God for the grace to enjoy the gift. Right? So then, as, Sol- as Solomon then moves into chapter 3, this is the second poem in Ecclesiastes, and we've got to do this fairly quickly because I want to get to the application. Craig, you said I have to be done by what time? 220, 221? 220, 225? Is that right? Jim said it. That's, that's, that's all I need. All right. Um, pontiff has spoken. So, now, in 3.1, Solomon makes this declaration. By the way, I do believe Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He makes this declaration that there is this appointed time for everything. Right? This is one of the most comprehensive statements you can possibly imagine. There's an appointed time for everything. And then he says, and there's a time or a season for every event under heaven. I don't read Ecclesiastes 3 in the poem on time, time for this, time for that, as somehow instructive or as prescriptive. As if Solomon is somehow giving us marching orders in this life. Or Solomon is somehow giving us an agenda to follow in this life. Rather, what Solomon is doing is Solomon is giving us a description of the life that all of us live. Now, there's no fatalism here. There's no, there's no despair here. But there are good things in this list. There are bad things. There are positive things. There are negative things. But at the end of the day, it is actually just life. That's what Solomon is describing for us. And what he tells us in no uncertain terms in verse 1 is that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. He's the one who has appointed every event under heaven. He is the one who is in charge of all of the seasons and times of life. I am in wholehearted agreement with Jonathan Edwards when Edwards says, we not only believe that God is sovereign, we actually believe that He exerts His sovereignty. I believe in a God who actually causes all things to work together for good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I believe in the God who is actually working all things out after the counsel of His own will. I believe in the God of whom it is said, from Him, through Him, and unto Him are all things, all things, to Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible breathes absolute sovereign control so that when the confession says God has decreed all things whatsoever comes to pass, I believe that. There are no accidents in God's world. There are no, in a sense, plan B's in God's world. There is a God who rules and governs and Solomon says it in no uncertain terms. And then in verses 2 to 8, we have this poem. Now the poem is made up of 14 couplets. And these couplets form a figure of speech called a merism. 
That is, it takes, in a sense, two um, opposites or two extremes or two ends of a spectrum and actually capture the totality of everything. We see uh, from head to toe or um, heaven and earth, um, that kind of thing where, where what is implied is a comprehensive statement. And so we have... 14 couplets, which I don't think is accidental. I think you have, in a sense, seven times two couplets, which has the idea of the totality of life. Everything from cradle to the grave is under God's appointment. He begins unquestionably that there's a time to be born and a time to die. Well, the Bible's abundantly clear that the day of your birth was appointed by God and the number of your days is appointed by God. In fact, it is impossible for you to be born one day before God's appointed day and impossible for you to die one day after His appointed day. God knows the number of our days. He doesn't just know it. He's the God who's planned it. And so the time to be born and the time to die is the totality of life that's under God's control from the day of one's birth to the day of one's death and then everything in between. And so Solomon begins, in a sense, with the most comprehensive statement about the totality of life that you could imagine. And then he begins to go through and he says, and we'll cover these quickly, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Well, there's nothing that's necessarily good or bad in either of these events. It's just just human effort. It's, It's sowing. It's reaping. But guess what? The farmer doesn't just pick when he wants to go out and sow and when he wants to go out and reap. He has to do so at an appointed time that's outside of his control. Solomon says a time to kill and a time to heal. So in the ebb and flow of life, there's actually a time for both. But again, both are times that are outside of our control. A time to break down and a time to build up. Again, what you have is a couplet here that describes, in a sense, both creative and destructive activities, and there are appropriate times for both. A time to weep and a time to laugh. Anybody ever... Put uh, somebody in our church bought me a smartphone. They felt sorry for me because I used a flip phone from the 1990s, I think. They told me I needed to enter into the new millennium. And so this thing, you can do all kinds of stuff on it, right? And my wife keeps telling me, you need to stop writing down dates for things on post-it notes, which you lose and learn to use your smartphone, all right? Smartphone is a great scheduling tool, she tells me. Now, how many of you schedule, whether the old-fashioned way in a day timer or on your smartphone or on your computer, whatever, how many of you actually schedule a time to weep? 1.30, Tuesday afternoon, weep. You don't do that. You don't do that. What happens? Something comes into your life, some event, some person, and something outside of your control brings you to that time 
to weep. What about laugh? Nobody says, you know what? It's three o'clock Wednesday. Time to laugh. Nobody does that. These are things that are outside of our control. And then Solomon says, in a sense, in a parallel statement, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Parallels the previous couplet. There's a time to be sad. There's a time to be very happy, a time to be glad. He says there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. The rabbis had a lot of fun with this one, and I'm not going to go into their varied and and sorted interpretations, but the idea is, is there's just a lot of reasons to cast stones. Casting a stone is just a normal, typical, casual activity in some cases. Some little kid picks up a rock and flings it. How many of you ever did that as a kid? Just as Boys are especially good, right? I mean, you find a rock, and that rock is just saying, throw me, right? And so there's a time to just throw stones. There's a time if you're preparing a field to gather up the stones. If you're going to build a fence, you gather the stones. In other words, the normal, everyday activities of life are even appointed by God. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. That is, there's a time for intimacy. There's a time for abstinence. There's a time for warmth. There's a time for distance. A time to seek and a time, ESV says a time to lose. NAS, I think, is maybe a little better. Time to give up is lost. I have three children. Both of my boys are still at home. One is about to turn 22. And the other is about to turn 19. The 19-year-old says the same thing. Every single day. Where are my car keys? I don't know where your car keys are. If you put them in the same place every day, you wouldn't ask the same exact question every day. I know. Have you seen my car keys? No. No, we haven't. And we're not hiding them from you. We're not evil parents that are trying to torment you. You just lose them every single day. Now, so every time he's, well, you see my car keys? I think to myself, a time to lose every day. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. The way I like to think of this couplet is pack rats live and pack rats die. <laughs> what an awful thing to do to your kids, right? Maybe like a pack rat and then make them responsible for throwing all your stuff away. Okay? A time to tear and a time to sow. This is probably a repetition of verse 4 of mourning and then, in a sense, uh, repairing a garment after mourning, after tearing it, and then a time to keep silent and a time to speak. Daniel Fredericks, who has an excellent commentary on Ecclesiastes, says, far from being negative in Hebrew wisdom, silence is a virtue of the highest order. And there are times to be quiet. There are times to be silent. 
Let's face it, Job's comforters were the most effective when they kept their mouths shut, right? So there's a time to be silent, but there's also a time to speak. There's a time to speak timely words, which of course Proverbs tells us repeatedly. And then the last two deal with, in a sense, polar opposites in human relationships. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. This is true on individual levels and true in terms of nations. And so the point is, in this poem, is that these are all the events of life. These are all the the characteristics of of what, what it means to be a human being. And all of these events, every one of them, fall under the rubric of God's sovereign appointment. There is something, if you are a child of God, even even if you don't come from, let's say, a distinctly reformed perspective that emphasizes the sovereignty of God, um, by and large, most Christian people really do think that there is a God who has a plan. And he's doing the things that he does for a reason. And so as we read this, we realize that everything that happens in this life, both the good, the bad, the positive, the negative, is under the sovereign control of an almighty God. But that causes a little problem. And I think that Solomon deals with that problem. And so in verses 9 to 11... I have it titled, Our Inquiring Minds or the Burden to Understand. And so, this is probably the the densest part, so I need you to give me your attention on this because I think that there's an argument that's being unfolded here that is not obvious. So in verse 9, we have this thematic question in Ecclesiastes. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? That thematic question actually goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3, after Solomon has said, Havel of Havels, all is Havel. And then he asks this question, what is the profit for our labor, our trouble, our turmoil? Remember, life after the fall is a life now that's filled with trouble and turmoil. And in fact, man's work, that which God has given man to do, is marked by trouble and turmoil. And in fact, this particular phrase is used, is sometimes translated labor, sometimes trouble, is used 35 times in Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, so what's the profit or what's the gain or what's the advantage? That word, by the way, is only used in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I think that the the motive for the question goes something like this. Our transience as human beings challenges our sense of value. And our transience challenges our sense of any lasting value to our work. So my dad worked at UPS for 38 years. 
It's a long time. My dad started at UPS when Ronald Reagan was governor of California and Jimmy Hoffa was the president of the Teamsters. All right? 38 years. You could ask yourself, what profit, Steve, was there in 38 years of delivering packages or delivering trailers that delivered packages? Day after day, this endless cycle, this apparent monotony. There is something, and now those 38 years are now over, and it's gone, and it's like a vapor. What, was there an advantage to doing that? That's the question, in a sense, that haunts Solomon through the book of Ecclesiastes. But when we get here to chapter 3 and verse 9, there's actually an added dimension to the troubling question. And that is, in light of God's sovereignty, what difference does it make? If God really is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything, and everything is just unfolding according to his plan, then what, what, what advantage, what, what benefit is there in toiling and toiling and toiling? Proverbs 20, 24 says, Man's steps are ordained by God. How then can he understand his way? Now, Solomon then says that there's this task Okay, this is verse 10. I've seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Now here's, by the way, that goes back to chapter 1, verse 13. You could translate it like the ESV. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. Um, a grievous task. One commentator translates this phrase repeatedly. It is a lousy job. Now, what is this lousy job? Well, I think that the lousy job doesn't look back. I think it looks forward to what is explained then in verse 11. And this is how I think Solomon describes the lousy job. So, understand, here we have a God who's absolutely sovereign, working out all things in his appointed time, and then we say, if that's true, what's the point? What's the point? And so Solomon says, now, here is this unhappy job that God has given to the sons of men. Now, this is what makes it unhappy. God's made everything beautiful in its time. And God has put eternity in their hearts. Okay. These, these two factors make the job a lousy job. So follow me. God has made everything beautiful in its time. By the way, some commentators uh, shy away from the term beautiful and prefer the term appropriate. God's made everything appropriate in its time. But, but I think that we should stick with the word beautiful. The reason they shy away from beautiful is because there's things like hating and killing in the, in the poem. But I think that the point ends up being is that God himself is actually using all of the events of life, the positive, the negative, the good, and the evil, to actually work out a tapestry, which in the end is going to be absolutely beautiful because it's going to be according to his perfect plan. And so one of the early church fathers said, with God, everything fits. Nothing is wasted or lost. 
Daniel Fredericks again says that God has made everything beautiful in its own time is the greatest statement of divine providence in the whole Bible. And so here we are, God's sovereign. I work, I have a life. I wonder what the point is, especially in light of God's sovereignty. I know that God actually is making all things beautiful in its time, and also I have an awareness of eternity in my heart. Do you know what that means? That means that that fundamental sense that the God of heaven and earth has an eternal purpose. And that resonates inside of me because I have an innate sense of eternity. And because I have that innate sense, I actually do believe that God has an appointed time for every event under heaven. And I actually do believe that I, there's a purpose in my life. And God is making it beautiful and, 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 and it's going to be this glorious eternal thing. But then there is this awful, painful burden. Notice. Yet, middle of verse 11, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Here, here is the grievous task, the lousy job. God's working all things out after the counsel of his will. He's absolutely sovereign. He's making all things beautiful. He has an eternal plan that you innately have a sense that he's doing. And, and, and here this, this glorious theological framework exists in your soul. And yet you don't have the ability to answer the question, why? Because God's not given you the ability to answer the question, why? You want to know? You know that things happen for a reason. You want to know why that or what that reason is. And God has said, you know what? Here's the lousy job I've given you. You want to know, but I'm not going to tell you. Now, some people think that that sounds mean. I believe if you think about it long enough, you'll realize it's incredibly gracious. First of all, your circuit board's not big enough for God's answers. Let's just say some event happens, and you say, why? And God says, well, let me explain it to you. And all of a sudden, all of the interconnected details of God's eternal purpose start to unfold and they are so vast and so immense there's no way for our small brains to even begin to comprehend. And then beside that, my goodness, what would life be like if God answered all of our why questions? This coming August will mark two years since the death of the son of a very, very good friend of ours. He was 19 years old, same age as my son. And they grew up and were, were good friends when they were little kids. He was on fire for the Lord. He loved Christ and was going to ask this young lady to marry him. He was being used by God at La Crosse University and he dies in what seems to be an absolutely meaningless car accident. Why? 
I think that God says, I'm not going to tell you because you couldn't handle it. You, you couldn't handle all the things that I'm going to do out of it. And, and right now, in your present finite fallen state, my explanations to you would go so far beyond your ability to comprehend. There's no way you could wrap your mind around what I'm doing. God is actually gracious in not telling us why. And so, this is the lousy job This is the tension, the toil, the trouble that we have in this life is that we believe in a God who's sovereign and yet we also know the details and the pain of life and we say, you know what, I believe He's sovereign over those things, but why did this happen and why did that happen? Solomon does not leave us without counsel. He gives counsel for the curious in verses 12 to 15. And so this is what he tells people who who come to recognize this toil and this labor. He says, I know there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. You want to actually go through life holding on to the sovereignty of God and getting through life sanely. Here's how you do it. Enjoy life as a gift from God and do good. Those are things that God has put within your reach. Those are things that God has given you the capacity to do. Rejoice and do good. Embrace life as the gift of God. Verse 13, moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It's the gift of God. And so you get up in the morning, you drive, you, you hook your trailer up, you deliver packages down to Kettleman City, and you turn around and come back. And I think Solomon's saying, you know what? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of God's eternal purpose, but here it is. That's God's gift to you. Enjoy it. Do good. Do your best at it. Do what you can do. Whether you can make sense of it or not, you just keep doing what God has called you to do. Moms, another dirty diaper. It's God's gift to you. You see what I'm saying? All of life, you can't, You can't sit there, put it under a microscope, analyze it, and try to figure it out. God says, embrace it as a gift, rejoice, do good. Now, Solomon does not leave us absolutely in the dark. Here's what we do know. Let me just summarize these since we're running out of time. First, God's work is eternal. He does have a plan. God's work is immutable. That is, his work doesn't change. God is God, we're not, so fear him. In fact, his deeds are quite the opposite of ours because our our deeds are temporary. God's last forever. And so in God's universe, things pretty much remain the same because that's how he has planned it. Now, how do we help people make peace with their past when they cry out, with the question, why? First, this is so important, gently, gently 
affirm God's sovereignty without denying human responsibility. Okay? Now, I do not mean, there have been a lot of people who have done a lot of damage when they've counseled somebody with the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And I acknowledge that, right? Something terrible happens. Well, you know what? God planned it that way. Sorry. That's terrible. That's terrible. Why is it terrible? Because the sovereignty of God is designed to be an anchor for our soul. And God's sovereignty is rooted in his goodness and his wisdom. And so we gently affirm God's sovereignty without denying human responsibility, just like Joseph does at the end of the book of Genesis. What you intended for evil, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. In fact, by the way, the good that God planned went beyond Joseph's ability to comprehend. And so I caution us, we need to make sure that we don't think or portray God's sovereignty in some kind of cold, clinical, detached way in which we say, yeah, there's a God and he sovereignly decreed absolutely everything and, you know, just like it or lump it. We gently affirm God's sovereignty without denying human responsibility. Secondly, we affirm the naturalness of wanting to know. I think Ecclesiastes 3 tells us, you know what, God wired you in a way to want to know. It's a great article in Journal for Biblical Counseling by Matthew Mitchell. He says it's not wrong to want to know something, but when that desire mutates into a demand or a need, it takes on a life of its own, sucking up time and attention, undermining the worship and love that a Christ follower should have in his daily life. And so we affirm the naturalness of wanting to know, but then, thirdly, we warn of the danger of demanding to know. I, I mean, in a sense, we're giving um, uh, what, what theologians call uh, a theodicy, a justification of God, which we see in the book of Job and Romans chapter 9, which basically says this, uh, who are you to answer back to God? The thing created or the, the thing created will not say to the one that created, why'd you make me this way? So there is, there is a naturalness in wanting to know, but there's also a danger in demanding to know. In our church, we have a, 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 a guy who's in the Marine Corps. He's a major. He's been to Iraq and Afghanistan so many times, and he is just he's a great brother, and he always tells me, you know what? We're just on a need-to-know basis. Now, for a Marine, that's abundantly clear. We're just on a need-to-know basis. My superiors tell me only that which I need to know. Well, God is the ultimate superior. And he tells us only what we need to know. So if he doesn't tell you, he doesn't think you need to know. And so, Matthew Mitchell again says, so this need to know has been ruling me more than I'd like to admit. When I'm in its grip, it serves as a God replacement for me. The most important thing in my life at that moment, it's also a way that I try to play God. I'm trying to pretend that I'm omniscient or at least growing into it. That's ridiculous. Only God is God. He goes to great lengths to reassure me and calm my anxious heart, but he won't let anything else take his place, including a juicy piece of information. Which leads us to the fourth point of application, which is this. 
after you gently affirm God's sovereignty without denying human responsibility, once you affirm the naturalness of wanting to know and the danger of demanding to know, point people to the God whom we can trust without having to know why. W. Glenn Evans, I will not demand that God explain himself to me at any time. For this is characteristic of the unregenerate man. I must be willing to let God be unreasonable in my view, if necessary, because he's not concerned with my understanding, but with my faith. The unregenerate man sees contradictions in the world and demands that God justify himself before him. The believing man makes no such demand, but believes God supremely. And Mitchell says, my greatest need is not to know information, it's to know a person, Jesus. And so, God through his Son has made all things beautiful in their time. Every event in our lives, every event in our past. And I know there's a reason. Even in the deepest and darkest and most painful things of life, I know that God was not asleep at the wheel. I know He was still in control. And there's a reason. And what I need to see is that my biggest need as a creature is not to have some secret knowledge into the eternal counsel, nor to have some super high IQ by which I can analyze and assess, but my biggest need is to trust Him. And so can you trust a God who's not only sovereign, but who sent His Son for you? Can you trust the sovereign God who loved you and gave him his son up for you. David says, O oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I've composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rest against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice. We really do rejoice that you're in control of everything. What would the options be? How we rest in a God who is sovereign and wise and good. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we try to help others and as we ourselves wrestle with these issues. Help us to realize, Father, that at the end of the day, what you, what you want from us is for us to simply trust you even when we don't understand why. You are good and you do good. Help us in our toughest times to cling to that with everything we are. In Christ's name, amen. Copyright 2014, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.